1: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
0: Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm your co host, Kara Ongweili.
1: And Mary Tolentino.
0: In this episode, we talk with Dr. Gail Christopher, an award winning social change agent with expertise in, so- in the social determinants of health and well being in related public policies. She is known for her pioneering work to infuse holistic health and diversity concepts into the public sector and in policy discourse. Dr. Christopher recently retired from her role as Senior Advisor and Vice President to the WKK Kellogg Foundation, where she was the driving force behind the America Healing Initiative and the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation effort. Dr. Christopher also served as Kellogg's Vice President for Program Strategy and worked on place-based programming in New Orleans and Mexico. In 2015, she received the Terrence Keenan Award from Grantmakers in Health. She chairs the board of the Trust for America's Health. In 2019, Dr. Christopher became the executive director of the National Collaborative for Health Equity. Dr. Christopher is also the author of a new book, Rx Racial Healing. Enjoy the episode. Dr. Christopher, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. Um, I want to start by asking you, about the importance of educating about and addressing the persistence of racism in systems and structures. It is a topic that has become deeply politicized, and yet racial healing is more crucial now than ever to both the well-being of our communities, but also to to a vibrant and thriving democracy. I wonder if you can start by putting this moment in historical context for our audience.
2: Thank you. I'm more than happy to do that and and really happy to have this conversation. Uh, Let me say that this work of racial healing, as I define it, and I define racial healing as the elimination of the belief and the belief system and the structures that it creates the belief in a false hierarchy of human value, or a false hierarchy of humanity, and although that began, that that belief system began, you know, way back, maybe in the 15 and 1600s, it was codified into a biological or botanical taxonomy, you know, in the 1700s, and it was that codification that sort of gave it. Um, scientific credence, if you will, and it became the basis of scientific racism. Now, of course, many things had happened before that that had justified enslavement and colonization and brutality and all sorts of things, but there was something about that particular moment that I think gave it staying power. So this false view, this false worldview of humanity, was the basis upon which we built this nation. And so I I phrase racial healing in many ways as unfinished business, because even though we dealt with the consequences of that false worldview through a civil war, you know, through an abolition movement, through the first, you know, civil rights legislation back in the 1800s, through the the attempt to eradicate Jim Crow laws and practices with the civil rights movement of the 60s. You know, we keep dealing with the consequences of this false ideology and this false belief system, but we haven't ever really uprooted the belief system itself and replaced it, replaced it. And that's what's the most important. You know, Buckminster Fuller says, Change doesn't happen by attacking the existing model. Change happens when we create new models that make the old models obsolete. You know Apple made the blackberry obsolete. you know, and so we could we can name a thousand things, new models that made the old models obsolete. We don't have a new model for relating with one another as human beings, as equal human beings. And that's what the work of racial healing is about. It is about creating and and promoting and embedding this new model of relationship that truly understands and values our, I use the term sacred, interdependence, interconnectedness and interrelatedness as an expansive human family. That's the new model and that's the work. If we do that work, If we start creating these compassionate ways of understanding and connecting with one another, then we'll have the permanent motivation to live up to our espoused and aspirational ideals as a democracy. So that, so my historic context is largely, we've never done the work and we have to do that work.
1: I just want to say that was a really beautiful introduction. I think that it, it goes really well with our next question. Um, so from your from your work and like from your experience, uh, what are some examples of how communities have successfully approached the truth and racial healing and uh, reconciliation?
2: Thank you for that question. Um, and, and we like to say truth, racial healing and transformation. And that's very intentional. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Truth, Racial Healing, and Transformation Effort, which is locally, and now we're working on a national version of it, but the TRHT, we call it, it it, it really is a an attempt to create an American grounded um, adaptation of the truth and reconciliation commissions that have happened around the world. And we looked at those and we studied those. There have been over 40 of them. And we came to the conclusion that for America, we had to embed the commitment to transformation in the very process, because that's one of the main criticisms of the truth and reconciliation efforts. They they are cathartic, they are helpful, they are in some cases emotionally healing, and communities come back together. But like America, post-Civil War, you know, the Southern states and the Northern states reconciled. But they did not transform and they did not eliminate the belief in a hierarchy of human value so what are communities doing around the country some are actually having truth and reconciliation commissions at a local level Uh, they are focusing on the five pillars of the framework which includes the truth telling and that can happen during the commission processes they are Building up a critical mass of public will for engagement by having racial healing circles all over the city. Chicago, I think, may have done more than any other city. They've trained over, I think, 400 practitioners to convene these healing circles. Um, And they are also doing the hard work of, and of narrative change now narrative change is is you know creating a new ethos creating a new cultural representation Uh, so many groups are taking down old statues you know taking down names that that reinforce the fallacy of a hierarchy of human value they are creating artistic uh installations that that reflect our common humanity uh they are they are creating um exhibits and other things that are. So the first phase of the framework is narrative change or the first component of it. And so any way that you can begin to project a new narrative of your community that celebrates and embraces not only the truth of the past, but the truth of the future in terms of our sacred interconnectedness as a human family. So lots of places are doing those kinds of creative things all across this country on college campuses you know civic organizations the national day of racial healing uh the kellogg foundation thinks there are over a million folks being involved in that on an annual basis now and um and they just find ways to step aside you know step back and 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 emphasize the prioritization of this work on that day every year and it comes the day after the Martin Luther King Day celebration, uh, we deliberately timed it that way so that we would be reminded of Dr. King's dream of creating the beloved community, because that's what this work is about. It's about healing our divides and coming together to actualize our democratic aspirations. Uh, so communities are doing that. So there's the narrative change, there's the racial healing work, and then we get into the other three pillars of the framework, which is the structural work, the systemic work, which is, you know, we asked ourselves, well, if racial hierarchy is a false representation, how has it lasted for so many centuries? How is it so embedded? And we came up with three primary tools for embedding and sustaining racial hierarchy, because if you know how it has happened, you know how to undo it. Right. So one of the primary tools is through separation and separation takes many, many forms, everything from moving indigenous people from the the lands that they occupied and were stewards of to uh, the enslavement of, of forcing Africans to come from Africa and be enslaved to child welfare uh, disparities and inequities that are based on this this these false stereotypes and ideology around family and family and culture, the cradle to prison pipeline, school segregation, residential segregation separation is the primary tool of maintaining racial hierarchy. So the second uh, tool, the one that you know we see most of in the news is what we call the law and but it's not just the criminal justice system but it's also voting it's also immigration policies those are all policies and structures that are by design maintained to maintain racial hierarchy and then finally the the last of the five pillars of the trhd framework is the economy and our economic system exploited racial hierarchy, was built on racial hierarchy and still continues to do that. So we find, and these are in our policy briefs that you can download from our website, uh, the National Collaborative for Health Equity. And we partnered with the American Public Health Association and with the Beaumont Foundation, and we created a set of policy briefs that documents what communities are doing around each of those pillars of the framework. So you have the activities that I described, some of which relate to narrative change and racial healing, but they're changing the zoning, you know, they are uh, developing accountability systems for the child welfare system. Uh, They are really mobilizing to to try to counter this movement to deny the vote to people of color, and they're putting in place where they can policies to expand the right to vote, right? Uh, And then, of course, the economic Policies have to do with access to uh, a living wage, in some cases, or even the the child tax credit and other things that help to build up the economic viability of the communities that have been most subjected, you know, to the racial hierarchy. So that's a long answer, but it was a great question. I hope it was helpful. Uh, it was
0: very helpful, and I here in Virginia. Um, the previous administration, um, gubernatorial administration actually had a commission to examine state um, policies and laws um, in order to, to do that work. Um, and there, there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> um, and and it has to trickle down, it seems to me, also to localities um, as well. And so it seems to me that that's a great opportunity for um, people who want to be engaged in this work, um, you know, to make a contribution, to just start with their local level and examining codes, um, in examining um, how election administration is conducted, um, uh, and and to you know have the opportunity to participate um, in reimagining, you know, what the policies and laws should look like, so that our communities are more and our economy. Are more inclusive.
2: I really appreciate you using the term reimagining because while I described the framework for TRHT, I didn't describe the process. Mm. And the process begins with reimagining. It begins with re envisioning, if you will, what is a future? What what are the what does it look like? What does it feel like when we have, in fact, and I'm a Star Trek fan, so I use the term jettison. When we have, in fact, jettisoned this permission to devalue some people and value others more, so you know the visioning work and that's not typical for social change work social change work tends to be so focused almost exclusively on the problem, on the deficit. Uh, in TRHT work, we bring out a, a multi-sector collaborative together to, to envision where we're going with clarity, right? the North Star. And they do it for each of those five pillars. So they create a vision, they do a landscape analysis in terms of where are we now in relationship to that clearly articulated vision, who has the the authority, who needs to be part of achieving that vision, who can make things happen like the attorney general, right? Um, And then what are specific actionable, uh, you know, recommendations in the short term And then what are the systemic, structural, sustainable changes that need to be put in place for the long term? So it's both, uh, you know, a set of uh, pillars, if you will, or a conceptual framework for the for this work. But it's also a process that that diverse communities engage in.
1: So if you could talk a little bit about what the role of higher education in racial healing and what research questions um, are not getting enough of the attention?
2: Higher education, higher education plays a critical role. That's why we are so excited about our partnership with the Association of American Colleges and Universities. Uh, and I think now there may be 49 campuses that are engaged in terms of actually creating centers. Uh, there are over 70 that are, have been exposed to it and participated in the institutes. Higher education is preparing our leaders for the future. and so what more important place than campuses for challenging the 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 false hierarchy of human value and and tracing its history acknowledging how it actually built our higher education system in many cases and then beginning to codify and to research the benefits, you know, the the emotional benefits, the health benefits. You know, my book was just published last week by the Association of American Colleges and Universities, and it's called Rx or Prescription Racial Healing. There are many approaches to racial healing circles. The one that, that I designed and that, you know, many places are using, we build into it an emphasis on positive affect, if you will, an emphasis on an experience of connection that affirms the humanity of everyone during the experience that highlights or fosters a sense of belonging, which circles do. And that helps to to chip away at our deeply held biases through the what we know what Howard Gardner tells us about the research on how you change hearts and minds you know so repetition or redescription is one of those tools and we build that into the circle process so you know we would we welcome research to to document that the changes that are occurring for folks who engage in the process uh, we need more research to document the the physiological pathways by which discrimination and racism predisposes to disease and to and to chronic disease as well as infectious disease. Uh, we need research on um, perception in terms of how people's perceptions change in terms of their interact through interaction. Some of that early work on intergroup relationship, it, it dates all the way back to the 50s and 70s. And so we need more robust uh, research to talk about how we form new perceptions and new ideas. And I would love to see more research on the power of belief in terms of how that affects our behaviors and our attitudes. So thank you for that question.
0: Going back to this idea of reimagining and creating more just and equitable systems, I wonder what suggestions you have for individuals and what in what actions individuals might take? That is a tough question.
2: Uh, I would say, as you can see from my background, uh, which is not a fake one, it's a real one, uh, how important it is to to read, if you can, and to become um, very aware through some of the amazing scholarship that exists. Uh, I, I, there are a few books I'll recommend. Uh, Ibram Kendi's, uh, stamped from the beginning, The Definitive Guide to, to Racist Ideas. Uh, wonderfully written. Uh, I think that book won the National Book Award. Uh, I certainly recommend The Some of Us by Heather McGee. And um, it, it it offers sort of a more of an economic view of how we have bought into this politicalization of hierarchy, in that if one group benefits, the other group loses. And it, it, it dispels that, those myths, as well as tracing those myths back to our history as a country. Um, I also really recommend reading the book, Race and Reunion, which talks about how the memory of the Civil War uh, was hijacked in order to create a false narrative. Uh, and it's a powerful book. So I think individuals need to learn as much as they can, get exposed as much as possible Uh, to the broader, more truthful dynamics of our our history and learn about the history of diverse groups, the history of indigenous people, the history of Mexico and America's relationship with Mexico. Understand colonization and the mindset for that. Um, There's a book that I listened to recently that I only recommend for the strong hearted, uh, which is about how uh, the CIA um, recolonized Africa, and it's it's really quite disturbing, but but unless you you look at these things and you you look at the primary sources and you recognize how the lengths to which people have gone to maintain racial hierarchy uh, you you just have no idea. you know, so that's the first step. The other thing I think is get involved in um, community organizations. That are working to bring about transformational change in all of the in any of the systems that work. You know, uh, I also say take a look inside your own organization. Now, if you go to the WK Kellogg website, wkkf.org, uh, the original implementation guide that we created back in nineteen, I mean in 2017, uh, it has um, a section for individuals. in terms of activities that individuals can do. Uh, But I think the most important thing is to open your heart and keep your heart open and recognize that our democracy is really dependent upon us doing this work. Uh, Most of the children in this country today are children of color. And if we don't create opportunity for them. We don't create an on ramp for them in terms of our economy. Uh, And that's not happening right now. Most of our children of color are either living in low income or impoverished situations. Although during the pandemic, we passed a temporary legislation that reduced child poverty by 50%. But of course, you know, that's stalled now in Congress. But but this is our these are future taxpayers this is and the evidence is clear that the more we invest in the early years the better outcomes we have in terms of participation civically economically educationally so this is this is vital work for our country
1: so you now serve as the executive director for the national collaborative for health equity how has the COVID-19 pandemic exacerbated existing disparities and racism in medicine and healthcare systems? And what do you see as the path toward health equality?
2: These are excellent questions. Uh, well, clearly the, the disproportionate uh, impact, both exposure to and uh, incidence of and death from COVID-19, uh, the burden has been disproportionately uh, borne by communities of color, from indigenous communities to uh, immigrant communities that had the lowest-paying jobs and the least uh, economic stability and the the poorest housing in terms of access to the necessary space and vent- ventilation. Uh, people who had to take the buses or the trains, you know, we just. What COVID did was sort of pull the covers off the way we've structured our society so that there is greater uh, vulnerability uh, along the racialized discriminatory lines of the way in which our society is structured. So that's just real. And for some people, that was an aha moment Uh, for many of us who've been on the front lines of this work for for decades, you know, I mean, I did an interview at the beginning of the pandemic and I had predicted that that's what would happen because that's what had to happen given how our country is structured. So, but we are in this moment now, the media likes to dub it a moment of racial reckoning. Uh, I like to call it a moment of, of, of racial compassion and understanding and willingness to do something So billions of dollars, you know, it was, of course, really ignited by the brutal televised murder of of George Floyd. Uh, So many people saw that, that they just they were just aghast. And so you had more than 20 million people marching in the streets, diverse people uh, calling for justice for a black man. That's never happened in American history. And so. we are in a moment, right? And and the philanthropic sector, the business sector, this new administration in Washington, they they are all saying, let's do something, right? Let's let's fight for 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 justice and equity. Now, in terms of the medical field, there is leadership at the AMA. They have a strategic plan for addressing the historic racism within the medical profession. Uh, the public health profession is definitely moving in the direction of of putting racism at the center, uh, not leaving it on the margins. I wrote an article for a new book that was released by the APHA, a chapter actually that was called uh, Moving Racism from the Margins to the Center of Public Health. And that book is called Public Health Under Siege. And you can Download that from the APHA website, but or you know, you can access it there. But so you have this moment, the CDC. We have over 200, maybe I think now we might even be up to 250, I'm not sure, but local jurisdictions that have declared racism to be a public health crisis. And you have had for the first time the the head of the CDC acknowledging the seriousness of racism as a public health crisis and how it affects our whole country. So you have this pivotal moment where the medical establishment, the public health systems all recognize that, that this, is a health, this is a threat to our health and well-being. Now, my work, I've been saying that for decades, and I think the primary vehicle is the stress that is associated with exposure, both to discrimination, to trauma, to adversity. You know, there are all kinds of of labels for how this denial of one's humanity uh, is unnatural. And it triggers a reaction in the human body that sets up a cascade of responses that makes us more vulnerable to disease. Uh, The medical sociologist, Dr. David Williams, he has an amazing TED Talk. And um, he created the Everyday Discrimination Index, what, four decades ago, I think, uh, and has been a real leader in, in presenting and mobilizing, helping people to understand, and many other scholars along with him, to understand how racism has such a negative effect in terms of vulnerability to disease. And now we're beginning to say to the practitioners of the fields of health, you know, bring that into your office, bring that awareness into your office and let it influence how, in fact, you interact and relate from a place of knowing and understanding and compassion with your patients. Uh, I think one of the most powerful policy statements was issued by the Academy of Pediatrics, Pediatric Medicine. Uh, They have a policy statement about racism and how it affects uh, child and adolescent health or youth and adolescent health. And they talk about the the individual effects and they talk about the systemic effects and they offer guidance to the practitioners to be able to mitigate those effects in their practices. So there is a lot happening in the field of health and medicine. Some of it predated COVID-19, but COVID-19 sort of opened the door. It widened the aperture, if you will, for folks to really step in and do something constructive. And that work is happening. The American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, the, pedi- the American Pediatric Association, the American Psychological Association. We suddenly have a level of focus and clarity and commitment at the highest levels of organization within our healthcare care systems. And, and so we don't want to lose this moment. This is an amazing moment.
0: Dr. Gail Christopher, we want to thank you for your lifelong commitment and your work as a change agent, uh, and just the deeply impactful ways in which you have contributed to our understanding of racism and your work to transform many different systems and structures. We ask this final question of all of our guests What would you do to strengthen democracy? Mm-hmm.
2: I would have a national full scale movement in this country, mobilize every sector, every zip code, every county, every congressional district, to do the work of eliminating racism, but perhaps most importantly, to do the work of building our capacity and our skill and our will, our public will, to relate to one another and with one another as equal human beings. Now Abraham Lincoln said, you know, with the public will, anything is possible. Without it, without public sentiment, nothing can be done. And so we have to mobilize and transform the collective consciousness of our country into one that deserves the privilege of democracy
0: podcast listeners thank you for tuning into this episode of democracy matters editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin JMU civics communication specialist Randy Bednikus, director of digital marketing at JMU does the syndication for us our theme song is sometimes it shines by pictures of the floating world be sure to follow us on social media you can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU civic and we'll address them in a future episode you can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.